Welcome to a special episode of Trending in Education. We were fortunate enough to have Rohit Bargava with us to participate in a Future of Learning Summit last week, and we were able to pull together the audio from that and turn it into this podcast, which we hope you'll enjoy. Thanks again to Rohit for organizing this. And Rohit's been a capital T, capital L thought leader for us for quite some time, helping us understand trends that are emerging. I got the term trend curation from Rohit, which I love. And the idea of trends as the accelerating present, which I think is also true. And I host a podcast called Trending in Education. Each week, uh, we look at what's emerging in learning, media, and the future of work. Dan's been with me since we started, and Melissa has joined in the last year or so. Each week we have conversations like this, but we don't always have Rohit, and we don't always do it in front of a live audience like this. So this is really exciting. It's awesome that people are here. Live gives, gets, gives a whole other energy to it. To your point, Rohit, we called it the, the future of learning, not the future of education. I think that's an interesting thing to kick off with. I know you and I have talked about it in the past. And I'd love to get Dan and Melissa in on this as well. But from your perspective, Rohit, what's the difference between learning and education? And if we're talking about the future of something, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about the future of education? Are we talking about the future of learning? Are we talking about both? I'd love to get your initial thoughts as, as we kick this off and then bring in Dan and Melissa. Yeah, it's, I've spent a lot of time kind of thinking about this idea of just learning and being able to do the things that we didn't know how to do before. And to me, that's really what, what learning is. It's about satisfying our curiosity and, and education is much more, at least in the way I think about it, about the institutions behind it. So higher uh, education, higher learning mm -hmm. schools, and the structured way that we, that we learned even to approach like certifications and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. and that's kind of my perspective, but that's as a non-education industry person. So, yeah. but <laughs> as know. a learner, you're a lifelong <laughs> learner, right? We all are. Yes, these days, yes, yes, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 And we've yeah. seen that trend. We talked about it on the show in the past too. Learning is much more personal and almost decoupled from the institutions and particularly around digital learning is something that doesn't really require an institution. It's more uh, an individual's direct connection to the resources that are available. I know one of, one of your big trends in your Megatrend book is instant knowledge. And you know, I think that's a theme that we're going to come back to really throughout this conversation, which is if learning is this thing that's right at the tip of our uh, fingers all the time, and we don't always need the institutions to provide just-in-time learning, what does that mean in the future? We had some ideas about stuff that might be further down the road, but I think this pandemic, I think, may have been an accelerant to a lot of the trends that we were already watching. So I'd love to get Melissa, maybe bring you in and then then hear a little bit from Dan, but any, any initial thoughts on, first off, what we're talking about just in general, the future of learning, but the, the distinction between learning and, and education. I'm going to kick it back to Dan. Yeah. And, and then I'm going to hop out and hop back into this. this okay. Panel. Awesome. There you have it. To take uh, Melissa's uh, baton pass there, Mike, I think one, uh, Rohit nailed it from my perspective. Of, I think there's the institutions that inhabit education and learning is something that we're doing all the time, right? And there's no formal necessity to learning. I think right now, we're all sort of realizing how 
tied those two things were for so long, like as a just a formal process that we always thought that education and learning were, were synonymous and that it happened in these brick and mortar locations or even MOOCs, or, but structured ways that were very specific to how we had to learn. Now, I think as parents, I'm, I, as a parent, I'm seeing ways my kids are learning, uh, but I think it's enlightening a large swath of America and hopefully the world around how there might be ways to change and, and grow and really distribute the wealth of knowledge and learning in different functionalities moving forward. So mm -hmm. it's a challenging time. I think the the amount of hair loss I've had trying to homeschool my children is, is not a insignificant amount, but it at least is opening up their eyes to, to how it works and how important being in school is, but also the opportunity that's out there, being able to log on to the Smithsonian website and do a tour, or I just think there's so much opportunity right now and it's ripe for disruption. Disruption happened fast, it was mm -hmm. forced upon us, and this sort of discussion, I hope, can be something that keeps on moving us forward on, on what's next. Yeah. And I'd love to get more into the whole notion of homeschooling. I heard yes. someone say recently that starting in March, what used to be 3% of the population that homeschooled suddenly became 99% of the population that was homeschooling. And I know that's something, Rohit, you were talking about as well. But I'd love to tie back to to your concept of of instant knowledge too, because uh, I know you had your your mega trends, ten mega trends, the the sort of capstone of your yearly did, yes. trend spotting book dropped like it was hot, and it's still hot. It dropped back in January. I'd love to get maybe a fresh take on instant knowledge in particular, and then any other of your your big trends in terms of what did this pandemic and the pandemic response and sheltering at home, what impact has that had on some of the, the trends you may have been tracking previously? To me, the, the most interesting thing that happened when we started shifting a lot of how we did things is that we accelerated what probably would have happened later to happen much, much more quickly. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I think that a lot of us kind of discovered the other side, right? So think about homeschooling. The people who were homeschooling uh, really helped one another. And there was huge communities around homeschooling, but it was still a small population of parents that were doing that. Mm -hmm. And maybe you knew somebody who was homeschooling, maybe you didn't, but it seemed kind of like they were over there right. and we were over here. We being the ones who were sending our kids to, to school um, in an actual building. And now we're all kind of together and we're looking at their example and saying, you know, maybe they, they were on something, like maybe they figured something out. And, right. and also how can people possibly do this all the time? Like, this is crazy. Right. Uh, right. And so we're adjusting faster and, and you're seeing that not just in education. I mean, you're seeing it in terms of restaurants and two years ago, they were ghost kitchens, what, what right. used to be called ghost kitchens, which were these ideas of, uh, delivery only restaurants. So a place where that made the food and you could pick it up or get it delivered, but you couldn't mm -hmm. sit down and eat. There was no place to sit. Mm -hmm. And now restaurants are being forced to convert into that. And so that started taking off. I mean, people right. watching esports as a version of sports because we can't watch live sports. And so we're watching people playing video games. And that was also around with Twitch years ago, right. but it was still kind of certainly certain people did it. And so mm -hmm. What I'm finding in many of these different places is these, these things, these ideas that seemed foreign and that seemed like, okay, those people over there are doing that, but that's not me. Now we are, are them. Like we're all together. Right. Right. Exactly. And I, I've, I've heard the term and I've used it a bit. The pandemic response has been a forcing function for all of us 
you know, things that used to be an option, like distance learning has always been around, it's been around for 30 years, but folks have been selective in their use. People talked about, you know, the advent of MOOCs, massive on, open online courses in 2012, it was supposed to transform everything. People saw it was out there, but at the end of the day, they would still gravitate back to the face-to-face, -face. Dan Kowalski in the, in the chats talking about, you know, the institution providing the infrastructure beyond helping learning. You know, higher ed's talking a lot about that nowadays where, you know, what are those intangible social functions that many of us have very fond memories of our college experience. I'll, I'll be the first to confess, it's not all about learning that I did while I was in college. It's about the relationships. It's about the, <laughs> the social dynamics. It's about the, the serendipity of running into somebody in the community center or on the quad. So like the fact that everyone's been forced on a global level into digital, you know, there's another, another question that we'll, I think we'll get to a little bit more from Beth, Beth Hasten, you know, just about how much are we actually accelerating due to the pandemic response? Melissa, we're going to throw it to you again. This time, I think you're going to catch it. And I have a good feeling about it. Any general thoughts as you're, you're back? But that was an illustrative example, right? Of how technology is an enabler, but it also can be challenging, right? I, I'm glad we planned it to, to prove the point that I was going to make uh, first off the bat. For, this, uh, for distance learning, for this to work, as we go forward, I, I really think technology is going to be a, either a huge help or a huge hindrance, especially when you think about economies of scales for the haves and haves not, mm -hmm. right? Like not everyone can afford the bandwidth power that's going to take this, can actually have laptops in their, their place. And I think that's uh, that's something that we're going to have to ch solve as an educational challenge mm -hmm. if, if we're going to, if we're going to pass, get past this point, right? And we right. all want to learn. We all want this to work. There's got to be some element of online learning that's going to happen, but in order for it to happen, we've got to get past these challenges that yeah. I'm likely still facing, which is why I'm using a different monitor right now as well. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and uh, Gabriel saying in chat, if you have five people in your home and yes. they're all using the same network, yep. you know, how many, how many laptops, how many screens do you have to go around, how much connectivity yeah. do you have, <laughs> not to mention just managing yeah. multiple children in the home. So I know I only have one... 17 month old. So I'm kind of fortunate in that respect, but I know both Rohit and Dan have multiple kids in the home. I'd love to talk more about that because that is another huge trend. Well, uh, Ro Rohit, yeah. you, you just released virtual, right? Which is a, a book talking about yeah, I did the virtual life, right? And virtual work. Vir so I've been working from home for five and a half years, almost six years now. I worked in New York City, um, working from home as Mike, uh, my former manager, puts in air quotes there, but we did some great work together. It was positive times. So five and a half years or so, six starting in June. Virtual work has been difficult for me to adjust to. I, I, it was a, a learning period of how I work, but I didn't have my children here. I didn't have my wife necessarily needing Zoom and Facebook help at the same time as me being on Zoom meetings and my two kids who are in school being on Zoom and then having to figure out because, you know, the two and a half year old needs to be like her older sisters. She has to have some device in her hand and I'm running around like an IT tech all of a sudden from your perspective and what, you know, you wrote about and how you see this, maybe the acceleration of virtual, the acceleration of all of us buying in. Is this a paradigm shift? Is this the new normal or, or do you see this as a, a, a slow push forward that's going to pull back once everything opens up and people are, are able to go back to work? I do think that that some of it will go away. And the reason why I say that is 
right now we're all at home and we have to do virtual meetings. And the upside of that is that I think a lot of people have realized that, look, I can learn and I can work from home. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a normal part of my schedule now. And so I don't need to go to school maybe five days a week or maybe more days a week, depending on how much you go to school. I don't need to go to work that many days a week either. I can work remotely. So the days that I do go in, I'm going to spend with people. I'm going to spend in the meetings. And I think that the new version of work for many people is going to be one day a week, they go home, work from home and do their actual work and do zero meetings. Mm-hmm. And when they do go into the office, they'll do all of their meetings because then they're face to face and it's just an optimal use of time. Mm -hmm. And so this whole world that we're living in where we're on video all day on Zoom calls and and every meeting is a Zoom call, even the ones that don't need to be, where we could probably have done it as a phone call and and let each other multitask like normal humans uh, instead of watching each other the whole time. Like that's going to shake itself out and people are going to say, wait, does this really need to be on video? Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe not. Can I challenge that notion a little bit though, Rohit? Because one, multitasking, is that a good thing or is that a, a, a bad thing in the world of, of working? I often think sometimes <laughs> in, in, in meetings, we are not focused enough. And, and so the meetings go on longer than they should be. Right? And so I am curious, right? I actually, and so I'm looking for your advice. I, right now, even before we went to a completely virtual world, I would always force my team to be on camera because I do want the engaging aspect of it. I want the focus and the meaning. I don't want people to be multitasking because I think when people are multitasking, they're missing stuff. And when they're missing stuff, I don't want to have a meeting for the sake of having a meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to make sure that people are there, engaged, we're making a decision and we're going away. Mm Because I I, I do feel like that's Mm -hmm. something that the natural tension that we're going to have to face because it is so much easier to multitask even when you are on camera. Right. Yeah, look, there's nothing that you said that I can disagree with. The only thing I will say, and this might be slightly controversial, but there are probably a decent number of meetings that you're involved in where you don't really need to have 100% attention and you'd still get what you need out of it. Like, for example, we do these update meetings where it's like, okay, there are certain people doing updates for what they're working on that concern me. And there's certain people who are doing updates for stuff that had nothing to do with what I'm working on. And you're right that these meetings go on forever. Some classes in the education sense go on for longer because someone dictates to them. Like I remember when I was teaching my class at Georgetown, we only met once a week. And so our class had to be a certain length. It wasn't because I said, look, I have this much material to go through or I need to do it. It's because someone said, okay, if it's only meeting once a week, the class should be four hours long. That's just how long it should be. And somebody decided that, right? And I think we can start to maybe unpack that and get away from it a little bit and say, look, we're not constrained by that anymore. We can make it certain days. We can actually optimize it. Mike, you've talked in the past about async versus live, right? Right. And I think we've sort of forced everything to live right now. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, you've talked about too, uh, this has been emergency management teaching, right? It's been this sort of reaction. And so if, if we are online again in the fall, there has to be a discussion, or at least my opinion, there has to be a discussion around the value prop, like Rohit was just talking about, about time served. Do you see something coming out of this where people can right size, I'll say learning in this purpose, maybe not education, but learning to just provide what's necessary, not the time filler that Rohit was just talking about, not, you know, making it an hour and a half because that's how long a seminar class was in college, but giving what they need. Do you see that as a potential benefit and, and a force fit for people moving forward? 
Yeah, I do. I actually think it's really, we're seeing a lot of the comments in chat about, I definitely want to get into the question of equity and inclusion, which Melissa touched on as well. So the one theme that I got out of everything that all of the panelists were talking about just now is to be intentional about your use of technology, where I think a lot of what has happened is we've been reactive about our use. So we lost in-person face-to-face. We needed to replace it with something. Let's use Zoom video meetings and just stack our days end-to-end with Zoom meetings. I think what Rohit, what you're talking about, which I've completely hear, is the idea of Zoom fatigue and the idea of, I will perform better if I can build breaks into my day so that when I need to be on camera, and to your point, Melissa, I do agree, when you're trying to understand comprehension and get engagement from everyone, you want everyone to be on camera. It'd be odd if any of the panelists right now were off camera, we'd want to know like, what are you actually up to? You know? You mean, you mean when I was off camera? Sorry, and, exactly, and now, exactly. And now it's off camera? Sorry, yeah. Just exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I know these emails, they keep coming. But, uh, but so I think the idea of being intentional about your use is something that those of us who have all this access, all this technology at our fingertips, we can be intentional about it. But one of the themes, uh, it was actually the runner up in our trending in education March Madness brackets. One of the themes that we've been tracking is the, the notion of digital inclusion. And I saw that from a handful of folks in the chat, really wanting to understand when we talk about the promise of digital learning, we frequently take it as a given. People are gonna have a high-speed connection. They're gonna have a safe home. They're gonna have all the tools and access points that they need to really lean in. We know that's not true. That's not even true for families who are relatively privileged. You know, they're competing for resources. If you extend that into uh, really the more the more difficult use cases that we all know are out there, it's a very harsh reality. And then I do want to make sure we pivot a little bit towards healthcare too, because because you compound that with those same folks who don't really know digital, don't have ways to use telehealth. You know, people. T- I want to get the, the the group's perspective on telehealth as well. But uh, maybe picking up with you, Rohit, thoughts on just the the disparities that exist around digital access and how to think about that when talking about the future of education and talk about how we design solutions. And then from there, I'd, I'd like to get a little more time on, on healthcare. To me, it's working from home, telehealth and distance learning are like the three mm-hmm. legs in the new use of space that has emerged in light of the pandemic response. But I'd love to get you uh, maybe to start and then and then a little bit of around the horn. Just any thoughts on the disparities that are out there? Yeah, I think there, one of the things that I have been, been thinking about, and the digital divide is, has been there for a long time and continues to be there. And it is a big challenge because not everybody has equal access to technology. And for a long time, I think that if you asked anyone who was uh, teaching in a larger class about their teaching style, what the best teachers have always done is they've been able to cater to learners who learn better in different ways. So some people are more visual learners, some people are more kind of hands-on and experiential, and, and great teachers are able to cater their lesson plan to those different types of learners. And I think that now the digital equivalent of that is going to be that teachers and organizations are going to have to figure out what is the gifted technology version of this in terms of somebody who has access to all of this, mm-hmm. and what's the lower technology requirement version of this. Maybe it's audio, yeah. maybe it includes more 
access to things that are on demand as opposed to live streaming, which requires higher bandwidth. Yep. Uh, these are the sorts of things that I think we're going to have to try and, and figure out. And, and by the way, the, the other thing I'll mention is, you know, it's become in wealthier places with better school districts. I think one of the most commonplace things has become students get a computer. All students get a computer, right? At least at my son's school, which is a public school, every high schooler gets a computer because it's a well-funded public school. Mm -hmm. Now, my son doesn't need the school computer. He has a computer. But there's no real way for us to say, you can give that to somebody else uh, because it's just a default thing. And so here we are sitting here with a kid who's lucky, you know, who has a nice house to live in and has good Wi-Fi and has now two computers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who to give that to. I don't know who to help with that. Now, I didn't pay for the, I mean, I guess I did pay for the computer with my taxes, but I didn't specifically pay for the computer. And I would love to be able to give it to someone who could use it. But how do I do that? Mm -hmm. Right? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we're seeing some comments here. Uh, Dan Kowalski's talking about in Eastern Tennessee, going a little bit old school and teaching through television. To your point, uh, Rohit, having yeah. almost like the equivalent of like a fat client or a prosumer version of like, if you really want to be a power user, you can get new levels of engagement out of digital, but then also having a, yeah. a more standardized view, which which I think is great. And then an interesting question from Natalie Long here, what creative ways have parents and schools worked out to reach families that aren't engaging in online learning? So not just about the digital divide, but also the fact that some folks are not going to engage. I've been trying to track, and it, the, the data is still too soon, you know, what's the impact going to be on dropout rates or how many students who were maybe marginal at or at risk are going to wind up just exiting the educational system entirely? I think it's an interesting question out there. And any thoughts, Melissa, Dan, any thoughts on how to identify those families and students who are not engaging and ways in which we might be able to draw them back in? I mean, I, I know I've heard of like, as, as I do, do the research and, and read a lot, I, I've heard of uh, ways people are doing it, right? I, I think there are so many social factors that need to conquer it. Teachers right now are, they're like, they're printing out on their printers at home. They're printing out the assignments and they're taking it over to the kids and dropping it off at the doors. That's what they've been doing. But we've touched on this before. That is only one, actually getting the information to the student is only one aspect of it. Getting them to engage in it, even if they were willing learners, is going to be another thing, right? Because now they're home. Their parents, these people are probably the people who are now the frontline workers who are still going out there. So these kids are, are being left one adult mansion, like 10 kids or so, for example. And and, and it's a real challenge because we're, we're touching on just how do we get the education there. Schools have a secondary purpose, right? There are a lot of these low-income areas. The schools provide meals for the students, mm -hmm. like breakfast, lunch, yeah. and dinner, and those things are, are missing too, right? So mm -hmm. you're asking me to engage in, in education when I'm not even sure how I'm going to feed my kid. Because mm -hmm. And that's what, that is what's really worrisome if we stay in this prolonged world. And mm -hmm. what we have got to figure out if the new normal looks like, like a hybrid of this. And I don't think the government is ready for it. Yeah. Right. right. So Two things, a plug for uh, training and education. Mike, you had Angela Seifer on a couple of times who does the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, I think, NDIA. Great spokesman for inclusion and digital equity and, and how she's been working to end the, the digital divide. A really interesting conversation. A very interesting woman who's done some great work in, in her lifetime to try to help this process. What I found interesting in my hometown here in Massachusetts is they've made sure that meals are available. They've made breakfast and lunch available for five days a week. It's one day pickup. So it is sort of 
and it's not a hot meal. So you are taking some negatives there. They have provided laptops to any students who said they needed it. So you don't necessarily get one. I think you get one in ninth grade, similar to Rohit, what you were saying. Uh, my kids are younger than that. But if you are an elementary or middle school student whose parents said they need one, then they got one. They partnered with the city and local businesses to provide hotspots. So mm -hmm. trying to figure out hotspot and, and that. And I've seen in Boston specifically, they've been using buses as Wi-Fi, portable Wi-Fi's. Yeah. So basically pulling up to apartment buildings where maybe it's not hooked up the way it is and figuring that out. For disengaged students, one of the best things I heard was on a webinar I was on a couple of weeks back and listening. The, the guest said, it's now more than ever that teachers are obviously our most important asset, right? And, and we are seeing that tenfold with the amount of work that teachers are putting in now compared to what they're already doing is astounding. And I hope everyone yes. thanks their teachers and make sure to let them know that they appreciate the work they're doing. But if they can go that extra step and send a physical card, a letter, a note, something to, to engage with them on a different level than this and, and on email, make it personal again. Maybe it's stopping a kid in the hallway and saying, hey, I noticed you, you haven't been listening uh, in class. Sending that note, sending a birthday card, sending something that is more tangible I think is one of those things. And obviously it's up to the teacher or up to the administrator and that's more work for them to do. Right. Um, but I do think that's one of the steps I've seen that has really hit home as a way to engage those who may otherwise be recessing to the back, may shut their camera off in the Zoom meeting, mm -hmm. uh, may you know not turn, turn in their work on time. And Mike, like you hit on it. There's a lot of other things going on there. Maybe they don't want the, the, their classmates to see their background. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe, maybe they don't have the best living situation. Maybe they don't want people to hear their parents fighting or whatever it might be. And I think, again, this is emergency management time right now. We're triaging, we're trying to figure out, and a lot of us are just trying to claw for the end of the year, just, just mm -hmm. hit that, that summer break. Right. Uh, but I do think if we are still in the same position in September, I think there will hopefully be a lot of lessons learned and we'll right-size a lot more things about inclusion, about reach, about connectivity. Uh, yeah. And the other thing I'll throw in, Mike, uh, and close here is I've heard a lot about buddy systems. Getting the students to buddy up with each other and the teachers too, right? Like let the teachers have buddies, let the teachers have someone to uh, complain to and connect with and be on the same level as, I think that's a good one too. Like yeah. give them personal yeah. connection. But I think the um, the flip side uh, of that, or maybe the the slight um, addition to your, your awesome list, Dan, of things that we could do is something that we did with, with one of my son's teachers, which I think the teacher found really helpful, which is feedback to them that something worked. Because we're all trying this uh, in a new way. And sometimes mm -hmm. as a teacher or even as a speaker myself, like I don't exactly always know what resonated for someone. But when mm -hmm. someone comes to me and says, hey, that thing you said or that way that you taught this thing yep. really worked, like the students really got it. That's mm -hmm. super valuable for them as feedback. And in addition to just saying, hey, you're doing a good job. This is not an easy yeah. thing to reinvent how you teach something, especially for those teachers who've been teaching something for 20 years. I mean, imagine right. you've been doing something 20 years in one way, and now you're forced almost overnight to change the way you do it. I mean, that's not yeah. easy for anybody. Yeah, I really love that point, uh, Rohit, too, because one of the challenges with emergency remote teaching, there was a really good EDUCAUSE article that I'm referencing where they, they made a distinction between Traditional online learning, which has more instructional design and learning science applied to it. Emergency remote teaching is what we just did, where everyone had to suddenly move in that direction. And a lot of teachers are already under tremendous pressure, and they're used to getting real-time feedback, where you can see those nonverbals, you can spend a little extra time helping the kid who needs extra help, 
now you don't have that. And the feedback you're likely to get as a teacher nowadays is probably going to be critical, at least if you listen in a public forum. So if there are ways to tap into positive feedback and the ways for parents to give that feedback, I think that would be great. I also saw Hassan's question was, was really interesting too, just around what's in the future for this? Because it's a lot, it's too much to ask a single teacher to navigate this complexity that's been foisted upon them. Probably also true for parents, you know, like parents are juggling a tremendous amount of pressure. Mm -hmm. Asking them to solve this by themselves is, is really unrealistic. I think ultimately it is going to require more partnerships and the forms of those partnerships are going to be interesting, you know, so so I'd love to maybe hear from you, Melissa, a bit about that too, thinking about, you know, how do private companies come in? How does philanthropy come in? How, do, how does volunteerism come in? Any thoughts on that from your perspective? I think Dan had put it in the chat earlier. I think a lot of the tech companies are going to have to get involved, right? You're going to have to see the Microsofts and the Googles come in and put more computers into the hands. Companies like Verizon and AT&T, they're going to have to spin up special Wi-Fi hubs and in low income places that is free. And I know a lot of them have piloted these things in the past. Like that, if this world is going to continue the way it is, like that that has got to be a part of the solution. And the, the company, we're going to rely on the companies a lot more mm -hmm. to, to do that sort of work. Yeah, and local governments are going to be stretched. Yeah. State governments are stretched. The federal government doesn't really have as much of an impact on local schools. It's interesting, right? When you initially said it, I think about the Warren Buffetts and Bill Gates of the world, but Bill Gates is literally focused on health right now, right? right? He's right. focused on how do you how do you solve this pandemic problem? Mm -hmm. And so if their minds are there, what are the next generation of, of, of minds that are coming in to solve the education problem, which is going to be a real problem if, mm -hmm. if this goes on for a long time? I don't think the governments, even the local governments have the know-how know in their infrastructure right now to solve it, right? Technology right. has always been a back burner for them. And right. so I would be surprised. To, they're going to have to scale up quickly. Yeah, like, and, it, and it is a great time, I think, to be an innovator or a disruptor in the educational yes. space. I'd like to say I've been an ad hoc instructional designer for 20 years. And as of March, the rest of the world caught up to me, you know, so suddenly everyone's trying to figure out and answer questions around how do you do the design of the instruction and the experience digitally. There was some interesting chat too, just about blending synchronous and asynchronous, uh, yeah. which reminds me of what Rohit was talking about around the way the workforce has evolved. I think you're going to see more and more of that at home. And just like work, like organizations are going to have to trust that their remote employees are doing what you want them to do when you don't have them visually in front of you. I think frequently high schools and K-12 and universities are going to also have to embrace a little bit of that. In some ways, there's a leap of faith that's going to have to happen around trusting the learner to engage and then holding folks accountable for their work. I think it's going to be a wildly disruptive time, but I think for folks who can lean into observing what's happening and then trying to get out ahead, also being open to be opportunistic in terms of your career path, it's likely that all of us are going to be doing a different job than we were doing in February for the next six months, at least. And then I'd love to get an around the horn on general read on how much, you know, Rohit, you were kind of touching on this, like how much we're going to go back to what we were doing before and how much we think the world really won't go fully back. The, the closest analogy I have is the, the Great Depression. And despite my advanced years, I, I wasn't alive for it. I've only read about it in books, but it is a profound shift and it's very behavioral. 
everyone's behaviors are changing at the same time. So it does feel like this will be the watershed moment in a lot of ways in terms of the way we all engage. Rohit, I know you look at beyond education, you look at the whole world, consumer behavior and media and all that. General thoughts on you know what this is going to feel like maybe a year or two down the road. Is this going to be a longstanding behavioral shift for, for all of us or, or do we think we're going to go back? Yeah, I mean, it has to be a behavioral shift because it's going to be a while until we can can go back to all of the things that we were doing. And I think that even more importantly, I think that a lot of us are asking the questions now, those of us who have the luxury to ask the question are wondering, that thing I was doing before, did I really even need to do that? All right. I'm thinking about that, particularly with travel. I used to travel all the time. And, you know, I haven't woken up at 4 a.m. for a 6 a.m. flight uh, in in months. And it's amazing. I love it. But it's not just about waking up, right? It's about that whole get on the plane, deal with that whole thing, jump into that meeting for literally an hour sometimes. And like that was part of my life. And I think that in the educational sense, there's also this idea of the traditions that we had in terms of how we would get to school, how much time we would spend in school. Do we need to go every day? Could we have one day off, one day on? Right. We uh, flip the classroom, which has been kind of the concept that's been around for for a while, right? Where Mm -hmm. you watch the lectures on your own pace, you develop mastery. I mean, that's the whole philosophy behind the Khan Academy, right? Like right, right. you get the mastery so that you don't get left behind. Mm-hmm. And we knew these things, right? I mean, we'd, we'd seen people do TED Talks about them, right? but they were slow to be incorporated because big institutions, particularly big educational institutions, move slowly sometimes when it comes to those sorts of things. And right. I think, you know, that is causing reinvention on the sort of younger scale mm-hmm. on the on the older scale when it comes to higher education i think that there's the real business question there too yeah. which is that money that was once perhaps justifiable but has been exploding and and heavily criticized over the last at least several years should I, we really be paying this much for these for this degree mm-hmm. you know that's really going to serve some some people some really concerning reminders that look, we need to be able to stand there and say, this is an experience that's worth it. And if people are, uh, I mean, already I'm reading about all sorts of high school seniors choosing to defer. Mm -hmm. uh, And that creates a whole business model challenge, right? Because as soon as they defer the revenue that they would have generated or the revenue from the international students, which has dramatically gone down, means that these higher educational institutions don't have enough to give the financial aid to all of the other students who can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like this this domino effect, right? Yeah, especially if you think about the mid-tier private universities, not a big endowment. They basically make each year based on hitting their enrollment targets. I've heard next year being dubbed the Corona gap year where many kids are just gonna take a year. Families are gonna say, we want you to take a year. We want you to defer. I think there's some opportunity to take advantage of the great informal learning, you know, compile together your best in class educational experience while you're doing other things for that year. But it's, we're really like off the map in terms of forecasting the year on the horizon. The big endowments, uh, they have big endowments, the big universities, they have online programs already, but it's more the the 4,000 plus institutions of higher education in the U.S., there's going to be a winnowing of that. You know, it was forecasted for five years down the horizon. I think it's something that's going to be happening 
right away. Other, You guys see any other questions you want to cherry pick out of chat? I think one thing that is very interesting here is the, the cost of higher education has obviously been something that we've discussed many times over. Some people are talking in chat. Will it go down? Will, will these universities that are going online say, hey, we're going to have your tuition bill because you're not on campus? Probably not. You know, they probably won't be doing that. So do, do you get the value of the social aspect by just attending online? I think that's a really interesting question. One I don't know the answer to, but one to track uh, into the fall. Uh, there's a mention here about community college. There's the discussion around the gap year versus community college versus waiting to accept your acceptance or enroll. And I think to Rohit's point, that waterfall can't go both ways. But I think there is a, a way here that there's opportunity for some students who may be able to get into that reach school, to use that term, because someone else decided to take a gap year, someone who had the privilege to take the gap year and, and take the time off and wait to see what's next. You may see some people moving up into schools that they may not have otherwise had a seat at. And I do think you're going to see, to your point, Mike, in the middle, mm -hmm. they're going to lose to both sides. Mm -hmm. They're going to lose to those students who move up in rank. And they're going to see a bunch of students who say, you know what, I'm just going to stay close to home. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a, a year at my community college, make sure I get my credits. Maybe I work a little bit. I help right. out around the house. Someone was talking before about uh, the privilege of the parents not having to work. There are a lot right. of homes where parents do have to work. And there are a lot mm -hmm. of homes where first-generation potential college students are actually helping pay the bills by working. Those are all the moving parts that happen on the lower rungs of higher education that I think will throw its part is, is that cascading effect. So right, it's right. all fascinating to me. I, I think yeah. it's there's a lot of human interest here, a lot of social change happening along with education and health, like you were talking before, Mike. So just to shift a little bit to the, the, the pivot between learning and education, how do we lean in? How do we lean in as learners I keep coming back to the, the, the quote, it's attributed to both the Abraham Lincoln and Alan Kay, which is the best way to predict the future is to invent it. It does feel like we're at a, a critical point in time where we don't have the comfort of the, the pre-existing patterns of behavior. Everyone's feeling a little shook. What do we do? What do we do with this energy? How do we activate as individuals, as learners, and then maybe as change agents to begin what hopefully will be a bit of a pivot in the future? Any thoughts on that, Melissa? I know, I know you've, you've got some thoughts and we, we want to share I, talk I, time. I, I, my, my thoughts were, uh, Roy's camera is stressing me out a little bit too. Anyone who says they can predict the future with absolute certainty is, is uh, crazy just as my job of forecasting has showed me it's like the one thing I can assure about is I'm going to get it wrong. I, I do think higher ed, higher ed and even beyond higher ed learning, that is where the real opportunity lies. I think in, in the high school and K-12 space, it's going, to, it's going to be hard, right? There are going to be a lot of challenges to face and the government, it's a much more highly regulated space. The government's going to have to get involved. In the higher ed, I, I think as Dan was talking, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to community college. I can get that information online for, for free right now. I, I You think about how quickly I can have build my own case between Coursera for free, between YouTube, which is one of the, the places people go to learn a lot of, of new skills, LinkedIn learning. I think there's there's so much opportunity to, in that gap year, figure out how to educate yourself, figure out ways to test your education. And I think companies who are going to win in this space. And I, I'm sure you're going to see a lot of ed tech and a lot of innovation coming out in mm -hmm. how do we curate content for people? How do we figure out how to best maximize the time 
that these students use it. Roy, this was your point that like $100,000 degree is not looking good to me if I don't get to hang out with my friends because that is the only reason, let's be honest, we all for sure went to grad school and probably a lot of us went to college for. Am I going to do it or am I going to just try and figure out a way to get the same degree from different sources? And I think companies who put that together are, are going to win. I, there are a lot of companies playing in that space. There's some interesting, Shannon, yeah. uh, yeah. Shannon Clute had a really interesting comment in chat too, talking about the two promises of higher education. One is the credentialing, where there were some other comments in chat earlier too, just about what happens to, is it still the monolithic four-year four degree or is it more, does this accelerate another trend around micro-credentialing and sort of deconstructing yeah. the certification constructs of higher ed and beyond? And then the second point I think is really interesting. What do we do about the, the social function of college, the rite of passage, the, the emerging emotional needs of parents and families and learners and the workforce? That's some heady stuff. Uh, I see Rohit yeah. nodding, so I, I must have gotten yeah, a little think, heady. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I know Shannon's at Emory where, where I did my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, social is one aspect of it. But I think as we get older and myself, definitely, we maybe undervalue just how much we learned how to become a person through some of those experiences, right? Having a roommate that you didn't like or you know, just going through the process of being on, on your own and having to navigate all this stuff uh, on your own or learning how to become a leader because you're surrounded by peers. And I mean, these are the sorts of things that happen through that on-campus experience when it's good, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be a, a super top tier college where that happens, but just being around people who are your age, being inspired by those people who choose to uh, spend their time teaching. Mm -hmm. Those are the really tough, the credentialing you can recreate. Like I can take yeah. a certification course mm -hmm. online and, and it can be world-class. I mean, if I'm going to learn how to play the banjo from Steve Martin, I can take a masterclass on that. Right. right? And I can pay my 50 bucks and, and there it is. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but that's not the same as right. this kind of extended experience. I think the credential in online is going to be doable. I actually think, and I think you've touched this a couple of times in your trend, there's going to be a move back to in-person work and in-person aspect of building leadership groups like we're like leadership yeah. boot camps for example or some other element where we go we can go climb Mount Everest together as kids shared experiences where kids kids and co young college students can get that same experience mm -hmm. some of the things I valued most in my college career was traveling abroad with my friends where we we got to see a new place and we studied or yeah. even taking trips where we're just socially bonded I think yeah. those things are going to come out as like almost many, many gap year projects or many mm -hmm. summer school, rather than going to an intern, I'll and, go and, do that now because I'm probably doing my intern all year round. Yeah. And a lot of that'll be digital too. So like right. to travel, move to virtual, how do we understand how technology relates to this stuff? I think it's really interesting. There's also a book recommendation I wanted to make. Dr. Gene Twenge wrote a book called iGen about what's traditionally called Generation Z. There already were some patterns prior to COVID around that generation where they were generally staying closer to home, they were using social media more, they were facing some challenges around really getting out into the world. That's going to be compounded by, by some of these forces. And, you know, another trend we've been looking at a lot on trending in education is just all the macro trends around behavioral health, you know, social isolation, loneliness, screen addiction, not to get too somber about this, but there were some serious challenges that we were all facing prior to the pandemic 
and now the pandemic has accelerated those as well. So it's another place where activating around learning interventions is, is, is one aspect of it, but other treat the whole person, understand the full context of what we're all grappling with in this day and age. I have found it to be the shared experience of suffering, as funny as it sounds, I guess not funny, but uh, as strange as it might sound, I think has been a real bonding opportunity, the global bonding that has happened. It's like when the asteroid is coming, suddenly we all unite. You know, the, the plague is almost affecting a little bit of that in terms of how we all are, are experiencing our lives. So but, please, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that, that one of the things that has certainly started to happen, I think will definitely happen much more is that those times when we do get together in person become more intentional and precious for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's already starting to happen in terms of when you go out and when you take like that, that one day when you do that hike outside and you go mm -hmm. outside and you kind of have yeah. that moment and it becomes much more meaningful as a, as a result of that. And I think that will continue to the sense of people deciding this is worth my time and uh, perhaps my risk right. to be outside and to be doing this because I'm getting something valuable from it. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I mean, humans crave interaction with other humans, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't see a world where we don't go back outside. That is a world that is going to have a whole new set of social social dynamics. And I think it was a New York Times article that said the pandemics don't end pe until people decide to end them, right? Mm -hmm. It was, I'm paraphrasing it, we are going to get fed up with being inside and we are going to just say the risk is now worth it for us to go back outside. That's okay. how this is going to. And, and I think the market will yeah. respond too. Like there will be new ways to mitigate your risk. Yeah. Uh, it does remind me of uh, Andy Duke, who was a guest on the show, the, the, pro the poker player, wrote a book called Thinking in Bets. Uh, to your point, Rohit, I think we're all doing risk arbitrage in our life every day now where like, do I really need to go to the groceries or is Instacart working? The trade-offs that, that we make and then the idea that you can actually invest in the, the direct human contact that we're all craving. And, and there probably will be a rebound, I would expect, particularly if we can get some, some safety measures, at least for yeah. some segments that are out there. I, I mean, of the countries that have opened back up, right, the people have already gone back to normal, right? A lot of people have already gone back to normal, like like a handful of people are wearing masks. I think we're going to get desensitized. I, I may be the lone voice here. I think we're going to get desensitized to the risk of the coronavirus. When it was new, it was fearful, but mm -hmm. I, I can see it in my everyday actions. I was neurotic at the start. I was wiping down my groceries. I was like, yeah. eh. Now I'm like, eh. Well, well, it, we'll see it depends, where it goes. I'll wash my how, hands. Depends on how many waves there are, though. So I, I think yeah. if it is like a one wave and done, I think you're right. But if, if it is like a whack-a-mole scenario where we think we have a beat and then it comes back in certain regions, I think that's that's a scenario that at least is out there. I think it for sure it's going to come back. And I think the next time it comes back, we will not treat it as seriously. Like, mm -hmm. I truly believe that humans crave being with humans, and that is ultimately going to yeah. dictate how we respond to it. Well, I think that, you know, I think you're right. But I think the, the other piece of it is the dangerous part about this whole virus is that the uh, people who already feel invincible are the ones who've been least affected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so they're going to feel even more invincible. And, and so right now it's kind of become a, hey, wear a mask, protect those people you love who are yeah. vulnerable, right. as opposed to you're going to get sick yourself. Right, right. And, and that's, that's an yeah. easier situation to eventually say, you know, 
I can't do this anymore. Right. And that's, that's to me, I know we're, we're way over on time. This has been an amazing conversation. Happy to go as, as long as, as we want to go. But I also think there's been an awakening around uh, generational thinking that, yes. that we've talked about on the show as well. And I'd love to get everyone's, pers- like all the panelists' perspective. Prior to this, there was a little bit of like, okay, boomer and sort of a Lord of the Flies dynamic among the generations. If Very anything, life. yeah, if, any, <laughs> if anything, there's a lot of Gen X represented, although, <laughs> although I think Dan may be a cuspy uh, millennial. So thank you for the diversity play there. Generational thinking and maybe parting thoughts too, because we are, we are getting, getting close to, uh, to concluding. It's been an amazing uh, conversation here too. So it's definitely, I know this is a, a test balloon for you, Rohit, but it does seem like there is a tremendous interest and engagement in this. So thanks to everyone uh, who's joined us, who's been able to lean in that way. But as we're getting closer to wrap, maybe we could go Dan, Melissa, and Rohit. Any concluding thoughts? So Dan. Yeah. One, thanks to everyone who was here. It was great to rechat and have the interaction there. Thanks to Rohit, Mike, and Melissa. For me, I think we're still in the thick of so many things that we're, we're having trouble seeing what's next, right? We don't, we're trying to focus on the fall, trying to focus on w- what happens next. And so many people are making predictions college and, and school wise that we're just trying to get a sense of it as it's coming in. I think that the next four to six weeks as places open up when talk about COVID is going to be the, what marks the rest of the summer. If we see a surge again, it's going to make 2020 classes seem really unlikely in the fall. But I think there's a lot to be excited about when it comes to learning, when it comes to education. There is a lot of things that are, are happening quickly here and people are being forced to think differently about how they learn and how they want to learn moving forward. And I think to your point before, everybody made mention of it, it's a time to, to try things out and try new things and see if they work for you. And Rohit, I think you put it perfectly before, do I have to do this? Is this something I need to do? Do I need to travel to meet with someone or can I hop on the phone like we used to do? Isn't that just fine? Uh, Can I get away with a 35-hour work week or can I work an extra longer day on Monday and not work at all on Friday? I think there's a lot of things that can be changed around in the way we go about our lives. So really excited to see what's next. Awesome. Melissa, wrapping it up? Wrapping it up and I'll I'll touch on your generational divide comment too. One, thank you for having me here next time. Look, I so it it has been fascinating to me. Like a friend of a friend of mine joked with me, right? I've never seen because I have a lot of millennial friends and I always attack them. This was the first, yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, Dan. This is the first time we brought Gen Xers and millennials together in a common cause because I think older older millennials and and most of the Gen Xers, we were stuck in a world where we had to take care of our parents and our kids. And like, so we were the most risk averse, right? And we're like, the, the, the boomers didn't care. They were like, we're going out anyway. I don't know what you want us to do. What is this Amazon food that you talk about? And, and the, the, the people below the millennials think they were invincible. So like, I am, I am pleasantly surprised to see I have a lot more in common with my millennial friends than I once thought would be my closing advice to this. On, on the educational thing, I, I will plus one to what Dan said. This is a time to go fast and break things. This is an opportunity to reinvent what has been traditionally a very slow moving industry. And uh, technology is going to play a part of it. You know, for anyone who's talked to me knows, I think data is going to play a huge part of how we, we do this. And so I'm looking forward to the innovation that's going to come out of this. And don't forget the humans. I'm hashtag team human. Remember that, Melissa. You oh, like yeah. the technology. <laughs> and speaking am. of hashtag team human, we have 
Rohit, who is the human who's going to bring it home. So Rohit, uh, concluding thoughts. <laughs> yeah, bring it home. Look, I I think that it, it was a time before where maybe we were in the downside of what we were in with education was it was a lot like a buffet. And if you think about like your behavior at a buffet, like you just load up your plate with all sorts of stuff. Some of it's total crap. You know, you're not going to eat it. You definitely don't need some of it, but you're like, you know, it's there. Who cares? And, and now I think we're in this moment where we're in the really nice restaurant. We're looking at that and saying, do I really want this? Like, should I spend my time on this? Should I spend my time on that? Where should I actually spend my time? What's going to be the most useful way for me to do this? And for kids, maybe they don't get as much of a choice, but us as parents, we're kind of thinking that through with them and saying, where are you going to be learning some of these things? Are you going to be behind in terms of what you were expected to do from a curriculum point of view? But we're all behind together. It's not Mm -hmm. like you're getting left behind and everybody else is surging ahead Mm -hmm. either. And so I think that, yeah, we're refiguring out how to interact with one another. If if teachers, they're figuring out how to instruct with more virtual tools, they're maybe opening their mind to using more third-party content than maybe they would have otherwise, like get your students to watch this video, that video, things that are outside of the curriculum, you know? Listen, I, listen to a podcast, yeah. maybe? I listen don't know. to a podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah listen yeah, to yeah. smart smart guys like all of you and, and women like all of you, right? And, and yeah, I think yeah. that it's what it does is it really opens our mind to how we are able to learn and how we're able to teach and gives us the permission to innovate where before we would have said, look, it wasn't broke before it was okay. And we're fine with okay. And now we don't have to be fine with okay. We can actually move it forward. If there's a message of hope in, in all of this, to me, it's it's that. It's that we can reinvent the way that we've been teaching, the way that we've been learning to make it more optimal, to maybe even get smarter ourselves and to push this forward in a way that, that won't go backwards once this pandemic does end. Mm-hmm. Amazing input. Uh, we'll use hopefully all of this as a podcast uh, episode for Trending in Education. And special thanks to you, Rohit, for, for getting this group together. The engagement really was was fantastic. And it looks like we're just scratching the surface in terms of the, the emerging yeah. interest out there. So thanks again to you and the non-obvious company for A, your thought leadership, but then B, corralling everyone into this format, which I think it was pretty exciting to be a part of and look forward to doing more of it in the future. Thank you.